Amen. Um, okay, so, uh, so here we are. Um, <clears throat> In, we kicked off a series last week that we called All Love. And last week, um, Pastor Ken opened by teaching us that, that there is a phrase that is common culturally uh, in, in his world that helps us to define something moving forward. And, and so you got the cool version before. I'm going to give you the geeky, nerdy version today. So buckle your safety belts or something like that. But I have a definition that I created off of the definitions that we have. Do we have that up there? It says, all love is a cultural expression. I didn't know this, originating from Chicago. That's cool. Um, I've heard it. I mean, it's a fairly well-known, uh, you know, expression. But it has two kind of parts of what it means. One is simply that it means that an offense is forgiven. It communicates forgiveness of an offense. And the second one is that it goes further than that, is that it, it tells you that someone's actions or statements are intended to be good or done in love. And so even though it might be a little difficult to hear rough, harder for you to understand, uh, not understand, but to um, receive I mean it, my intentions are in love. And so the first definition is like what Peter, I think, was trying to get when he said, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So when someone comes to you, sins against you, love has a way of covering that, gives forgiveness, says, look, you're fine, it's good, it's all love, all is forgiven. But then beyond that, the functionality is that it can establish a certain kind of aggression as redefined so that it is not a sin if you interact with me this way. So it's fine, you're good. In fact, you can keep coming at me the way you have come at me because I understand that this is all love. He gave us, Pastor Ken gave us the analogy of the basketball court in the park and how, um, you know, there's a formal version of this when you're at school or when you're playing in certain areas, but then there's this informal way in which the park is conducive to a little bit more aggressive play, no blood, no foul, right? Like, it, it, that's what we're here for, and we've agreed this isn't personal. This is just the way that we are interacting so that we can stay on this court and continue to play game after game, and so I couldn't let Pastor, you, you remember, he was up here, he's dribbling through his legs, like in, in, like, not, like in his slacks, like nice, I couldn't let him have all the fun. So some of you have some idea of this, uh, but most of you I don't think do. Um, I have a little sport that I picked up from literally zero to I'm, I'm in a tournament at the end of this month. I started boxing with another congregation member here who heard me mention I'm interested in these things, and he kept saying, look, do you mean this, or are you just... Uh, talk and talk up on this stage. And so about a little over a year and a half ago, I started taking boxing lessons um, and, and doing this thing. And so, uh, I mean, I don't got any fancy moves I'm gonna show you up here, uh, but I will be uh, heading, uh, uh, flying out somewhere and, and participating, in, like, like be, let me be real about this. Amateur, well, hold up, hold up. Amateur 40 and up, right? Like this, this isn't like, no, no, you know, let's get ready to rumble. That's not happening at this situation. But I've been preparing for this more solidly for the last six months, trying to use my best, uh, uh, you know, my, my advantages, try to find out where my weaknesses are. But the reality of this is that um, if I am not okay getting in the ring with people and sparring and taking some hits and, 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 and you never quite know what, person, what the person's aggression level is going to be when you're in there until you get to know them and every once in a while you take a hit and you're like, oh man, sorry, I know it's supposed to be light and it's like, no, 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 I need you to do that because if you don't show me this now, <clears throat> I'm going to get into the ring at this tournament and I'm going to be exploited for that thing that I'm doing wrong. 
All right, so whether it's footwork, whether it's hands up, like stop dropping your right hand, you're leaving this wide open. These are the lessons that I have to learn in this. And if there isn't a level of agreed upon aggression in that situation, I will not accomplish the goal that I've set out to accomplish. I'm gonna get beat up in that ring, right? <clears throat> so, so what I want us to see is that, like, what makes that aggression okay is that that's what we signed up for. This the cost this is the cost of getting to the end goal. And Pastor Kim mentioned that we have this common goal and, and that when we have a common goal, even enemies learn to put aside their differences, right? You've heard that expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I'm not putting that out there as something we should strive for, but I'm saying even enemies get this principle. When we have a common goal, we'll put aside some differences. Even enemies will do it. So how much more should those who are considered friends of God, friends to each other, neighbors to each other, take it further, siblings in Christ who are working for the kingdom and that we should be able to put aside our differences, engage in some kind of conflict that puts aside egos and pride so that we understand, look, some of these offenses are endurable. It's just the cost of getting to the end goal that we have agreed to accomplish. Why? Well, because the goal has primary place in what we're trying to do. It becomes the highest level of importance beyond the, the offenses, beyond the sins, beyond these little things that we um, you know, might get a, a pop in the nose every once in a while as we're trying to figure this thing out. And it's like, oh, thank you. You don't, don't apologize, this is all love. Like we've established that, we got in this ring together, this is all love, and I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna get those every once in a while when it's time uh, to learn where I've got some blind spots. And so the goal is that we are willing to engage in this collaborative process. We might disagree passionately. We might take risks together and fail. We're gonna have to put our reputations on the line for one another. We have to discover through trial and error the best way to move forward so that eventually we get to the true and honest best result. It's simply the cost of attaining the goal. But we have to establish that trust that there's all love between us if we're going to step out in this. Okay, so that, that's, that's my quick summary of Pastor Ken's introduction. I need us all to be there. As a community who is navigating cultural negotiations, we've determined to engage in multicultural ministry. This includes black communities, indigenous communities, Asian communities, people of Latin descent, any community, including the white community that was the majority one that started this congregation. All of these groups are coming together interacting with one another in a way that gives a different experience and perspective, a different angle, like, okay, you've seen it that way, but I grew up this way, and I'm bringing this to the table. And then you switch perspective. Well, okay, I get that, and I got a little overlap with you, but not really you. And so I, I, let me tell you about this thing. In fact, in our men's ministry yesterday, there was a beautiful moment where there was just like a, I didn't have that experience growing up. I am so thankful that you shared that with me because it changes where I'm at in this situation. So these values that we all hold can begin to compete with one another. I'm gonna give you one example. That's all we have time for. Um, in, uh, in our time in New Orleans, so some of you know that we were in New Orleans for about six years, um, there is a road etiquette that would not be obvious to most people, I think, coming in from the outside. And it is this. When you stop at a red light here in Indianapolis and that light turns green, you're supposed to what? Now, now there might be other things going on, you know, like you're, you're talking. What, what if you see somebody on the side of the road and you're like, oh, I know them. I haven't seen them in a while. I'm going to roll down. The, I don't know why I did that. That was really old school. Here. That's like embarrassing. All right. Not roll down the window like this. Hit the button, window goes down, you start chit-chatting, you talk and you're, and you're having a conversation, the light turns green. This is etiquette in New Orleans. The people behind 
are supposed to wait for that conversation to end because that's more important. The relationship is more important than the productivity of everyone getting to where they're supposed to be in exactly the time that they were supposed to be there. That's real. Now, if you, try that in Indianapolis, y'all. Like, what? And eventually, like, we had to see that. Now, now let me make another confession. And uh, I wasn't expecting, I didn't know who, who, if, who would be here today, but uh, the person who said this to me is in the room. So uh, it's humorous. Uh, I have been in traffic in Indianapolis, flipped off more times than in my entire life combined. And here's the kicker. I don't know why. Usually you're like, oh yeah, my bad. I get it. I did something wrong. I cannot tell you how many times I look to the left and someone's just like leaning over at me. I'm like, I don't even know what I did. And then um, I was having this conversation with someone and they said, uh, I can tell by the way you're talking, you just drive too slow. And I'm like, what? That's not true. Like uh, the speed limit is like, oh, oh, oh. That, that just really told me the answer I need. You just drive too slow. You need to speed it up and you'll stop seeing uh, the bird left and right. So think about that. Both worlds I was unprepared for. Both of them have a cultural etiquette, one that values, um, you know, probably relationship, one that has it like, okay, but, but look, like we all got things to do within reason. Let's move this thing on, right? That's why we're, we're in our cars to get somewhere. So you have these competing values going in. Now, I think you could probably think of some of your own, right? If you've ever dated, uh, marriage, friendship, roommates, anytime two people interact, there's going to be a cultural negotiation. Um, and, and there's funny ones, and there's ones that require a little bit more care and understanding. So when multiple cultures try to come together, there's a collision effect. Offenses, mistakes, sins committed against each other. They'll need to be forgiven. A level of negotiation, a standard of what that could look like and what's acceptable will have to be established. But if it's all good, if it's all love, if trust is established, then, and, and we prioritize the focus, the goal, we should be able to get through that, amen? Intact. Now the scriptures are filled with examples um, of this huge portions of the New Testament devoted to cultural negotiation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Some, where all of them trying to come underneath the authority of the scriptures, submitting to Jesus the work, uh, to work out their differences together, but still pursuing the goal of the kingdom of heaven. But it gets rough sometimes, right? People with low authority are left out and others have to advocate for them. There's inequities, prejudices that have to be addressed within the body of believers, right? Within the body of believers. Ethnic quarrels arise. Language barriers have to be overcome. Theology is being discussed and reapplied in new ways. Read Acts 15, and if you don't catch the tension, you didn't read it correctly. There's a negotiation taking place there and long pauses of silence where you know it's like, okay, this is getting awkward, right? Peter and Paul... I don't know exactly if they're both in the room, but I think they are. Paul's there. And then you throw in the fact that there's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, destroy, thwart us, uh, heighten emotions, get in the mix of all of those things and disrupt what we're doing. This isn't easy. So today, um, what I, I think where I want us to do is that I, I believe we understand we're supposed to love. I don't think that's, um, uh, we've established that last week. That's something we should understand. But what does that love look like in the trenches? And so for today's sermon, what I want us to do, we've got a couple places we're going to jump to. I think real quickly, one place I want us to start is um, John 15, starting in verse 9 going to 17. Um, and if this is all we get to today, then that's fine. Um, we'll save the other parts for a future week. But John 15, verse 9. Many of you know um, 
as you're, as you're getting there, clicking there, or turning there, or flipping there, um, many of you know I like to find a book or a resource that helps aid me in some of the series that we do, aside from commentaries and things like that. And so um, this one was good enough that I wanted to put it in front of you, um, not because the content or, or the theme was, was all that novel, but the way in which this author puts their personal stories on it just fleshed it out in a new way. Um, I've, I've, I've talked about this guy um, plenty of times. Um, Albert Tate is a, is a well-known pastor. Um, he grew up in, in the South and then moved to California, and he wrote a book. Uh, I, in fact, I think I, did I get a, yeah, perfect. So this is Albert Tate, and he wrote this book, How We Love Matters. And I've been reading through it over the last few weeks, um, almost finished, not quite done yet. Um, and he had some, uh, some really cool stuff to pour into today. So I want to recommend this book to you, though. If you have a chance, check it out. It's, it's worth your time. Having his perspective is really helpful. All right, so pick up in, in, in verse 9. This is right after um, the, the, uh, the point where Jesus talks about the branches and the vine metaphor, explaining that they must stay connected through their obedience to the vine in order that they get the life-giving power of God and bear kingdom fruit, all right? So, so that has just happened, and this is what Jesus says right after that. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. All right, Jesus is an example of the Father's love to them. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now Jesus is making sure that they are not just a mechanical fruit product uh, to, to be dealt with. This isn't just a process that he's putting in place where they're supposed to just be machines that produce whatever the kingdom fruit is. But look at the way he poises that. So, so here's the branch and vine analogy. Now, I want, you to show you, so I want you to know how this worked between my father and myself and how I then brought you in and connected you to this, uh, this whole system. So the disciple steps into a relationship of love with both Jesus and by extension then the father out of which a transformed life, a fruit-bearing life, will flow. Next, I want you to pay close attention to this description of love that Jesus gives us. He's encouraging them to embrace this specific kind of love, and I want you to see the position or status change in Jesus' relationship to the disciples. Verse 12 says this, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my, what? Friends, if you do what I command. Now he goes on to qualify their unique relationship as friends because they have up to this point just been serving underneath him as, as somebody who has authority over them. And, and as they're doing that, few people, they recognize this, very few people have ever been given the title of friend of God. So this is a huge deal to them to hear this from the Son of God. One commentary said it's a stunning level of comfortable personal interaction with the one who is also eternal, omnipotent creator of the universe. Here Jesus extends this privilege to all obedient believers. So Jesus is gonna give us a little more information. This is what it says in verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give to you. This is my command. Reassertion, catch it. Love each other. So Jesus offers them this positional upgrade 
inside of his relationship. This, this kingdom status change, a shift, which changes them from servant and disciple to friends that stay connected to him. And as a result, they will be fruitful, trying, or sorry, tying this back to the analogy of the vine and the branch, which he originally started with. So then at the very end, he asserts it, reasserts it, the command, which is this, love each other as Jesus has loved you, which he learned from the Father who loved him. Love is the juice flowing through the branch and the vine, making connection and communication and fruitfulness possible. I don't have a green thumb. Some of you all get this way more than I do. But there's something there that's just living and moving throughout. I, I, I mean, I know it when something goes wrong, you snap it and you see that liquid that's in there coming out. But if it's all working together, attached as it should, there is this beautiful uh, life-giving, fruit-giving thing that takes place. So, um, you know, as we started this, it's all love, plain and simple. But what kind of love did Jesus describe in verse 13? It's a sacrificial love. In fact, Jesus doesn't say, if anyone wants to follow me, they must dominate the competition. <laughs> I mean, that would, go, that would go well on posters with people climbing giant rocks and boulders and, uh, you know, sports and athletics and you know, all these different things that we say dominate. He never said they will know you are Christians by your command of authority, coercion, control, none of these things. He said, pick up your what? Your cross and follow me. He said, they will know you are Christians by your love, and this is a type of discipleship that you're never going to see inside of the world. This is a posture that you will never, ever, ever find featured through political affiliations. This isn't what happens when you start to see people running for offices. This is a type of thing that is a countercultural moment where prophets speak to power and say, you know that valleys will be lifted up and mountains will fall eventually, right? This is the type of thing that Jesus' mother's Mary, uh, Jesus's mother Mary sang about when she said he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. Now the world and American culture for that matter, right, will never lead you to cross, uh, to the cross or to sacrifice. It's not built, it's not a system built to do that. It will only ever lead you to hold on to your rights with both hands for as long as possible until you can rip them out of my cold, dead hands. That's the way the system's built. Increase authority, increase power, increase agency so that you can take what is yours. And that kind of system is not worthy of your undying allegiance. It's just not. And so we have to see this love as a type of counterformation to all of that. Right, we're, we're saturated. Every waking moment is the other kind of, of, of power. And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 this isn't an ordinary kind of power. This is a loving kind of power. This is a love that is defined by sacrifice. It is a love determined to lay down its own life for a friend. And counterformation isn't new to Jesus, right? He is commonly saying, you have heard it said blank, but I tell you this. In fact, one of those moments is, 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 uh, is where I want us to land on today before we close. It's where he takes this kind of love even one step further than just friendship. John 15, or sorry, Matthew 5 broadens our definition of who we are to love with this kind of sacrificial love. It says this, Matthew 5, 43. I don't think we have the verses up. Oh, we do. Great. Cool. 
You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Catch the counterformation, but I tell you, love your what? Enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus didn't just go to the cross sacrificially. He didn't just die sacrificially. He did do those things, but he also lived a life of sacrificial love wherein he had to choose that over and over and over, laying down his authority for others, laying down his reputation for others, laying down and even handing off some of his assignment and his authority and his power. He poured out his power and authority even in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven was given to me and he hands it off to them so that they can accomplish what they could so that they would bear fruit alongside him. They don't deserve the same reward as Jesus. I don't deserve the same reward. We don't deserve the same reward as Jesus. But he'd offer us that. So in the book that I referenced earlier, How We Love Matters, Albert Tate writes this. He says, so how do we do what the Bible asks us to do? How do we lay down our lives? How do we live out the cross? How do we love God and then love all people? How do we honor our enemies and turn them into neighbors? How do we stay rooted in a space of courage and humility? The answer is the same across the board. Are you ready for it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a a major part of this that recognizes I cannot change my nature on my own. I need the Holy Spirit to do any of this stuff because we are unable to redeem ourselves. We need you. Hear this. Holy Spirit, we need you. That's a confession. That's a prayer. That's a proclamation over common ground northeast. Holy Spirit, we need you. Tate goes on to borrow a fairly humorous analogy from his friend, another pastor we've quoted here a few times, Gabriel Saguero, using the movie... The Lion King. (laughs) Remember when Simba's hanging out with Timon and Pumbaa? I think I have it out of order, but I think we have this. There it is. Look at that. They look like they're having a blast. And what you have is a lion hanging out with a warthog, hanging out with a meerkat, and they're all living in a happy community together. I get that this is just a cartoon. Hang with me. You'll get the point, although I don't know that we can recreate it in, well, Well, the lion will lay with the lamb one day, right? So how in the world could this work? These animals have completely different natures. They're wired completely differently. The lion is meant to kill and eat the other two, but they're singing together and bonding in community. The lion is strong and courageous and ferocious, but the meerkat is timid and small. And in the movie, the lion becomes a vegetarian. Shout out to my veggie-loving friends out there. We got a few people. All right, all right, we see you. And the meerkat becomes courageous. They each develop a new nature so that they can live together in harmonious community. What ties them together? A problem-free philosophy. (laughs) And it, it, it means no worries for what? The rest of your days. What is what is tying them together? Hakuna Matata. 
Tate closes that section. He says, the lion in us must become a vegetarian so that the lamb can become courageous. We must take on new natures, united under the cross-shaped sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We must be led by a Savior who came not to uphold his rights, but to lay them down so that we all may be free from the oppression and abuse that sin brings. Our greatest testimony is our love for God, our surrender to his will, and the sacrifice that surrender requires. Now, some of you have interacted with this on, on, on lots of different levels, um, but a friend in here, again, has turned me on to a, a guy named Andy Crouch in his book, Weak and Strong. He comments this very same idea. Catch the way this plays out. We believe in our world that there are two ways to interact when values begin to compete against each other. I win or you lose. Or you win and I lose. But Crouch goes on to say that the answer isn't even where we might think maturity lies, which is, hey, let's find the win-win situation. That, that might be what we, we would think would be the obvious next step. The answer is based on Jesus' example. I sacrifice so that we all win. Crouch explains that real flourishing of a community comes when we reject the false choice of win and lose. Instead, the one who is in the position of strength must do two things. Take the risk of vulnerability and lay down authority. How does he define those things? I'm gonna give those to you real quick. Vulnerability is exposure to meaningful risk, and authority is a capacity for meaningful action or the agency to change your situation. And so the question isn't whether or not an individual at the top is flourishing. Uh, if they have agency, power, and they are unvulnerable uh, to, to uh, expose themselves to risk, of course they have some level of flourishing. But whether they are becoming vulnerable instead of resorting to self-preservation, handing off authority instead of keeping to themselves, determines whether the entire group can actually flourish together as a community. This is the radical kind of love that Jesus is showing in his life and in his death. This is the kind of love where hierarchies are crushed to make friends, those who would not, enemies, friends, uh, uh, people um, who were maybe in a different socioeconomic status, a different casting status, would become friends, not just friends, but even family, siblings, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons. This is a love that reverses the world's view and calls enemies our loved ones. This is a love that constant is, 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 is a force that sacrifices to overcome barriers, seeks to empower others at every age, background, culture, and ethnicity to be formed into the image of Jesus. That's our mission statement, by the way. So we can love our neighbors here in Indianapolis and throughout the world. You see, it's all love. And so I want to end today just by asking you a few questions as you process this, and then um, we will do one final closing here. Where are you applying Jesus' example of sacrificial love inside of your own life? How does this inform your political orientation? How does this inform your interactions with friends and coworkers and even people you have deemed as your enemy? How does this inform our value of justice and reconciliation in regards to the strength of majority cultures and the positioning of weakness for minority people groups in the social structure of America today? How does this affect the dynamics of the advantages you've been given inside of the social structure that we find ourselves in today? 
And what is the counterformation that God is calling you to to begin doing something different? Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Where are you strong and unaware that you're strong and might even be flexing that strength over someone? And to know the answers to these questions, I think we listen to Albert Tate. If we want to inhabit the fruit of flourishing and thriving inside of our culture, if we want to enjoy the diversity of God's multicultural family, and if we want to see the Revelation 7, 9, that every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented at the banquet table, vision completed, then we're going to have to spend some time actually asking these questions, becoming willing to lay down, take the risk that for the sake of our siblings, friends, and neighbors, even our enemies, we will let go of authority and hand it off. And if this is possible, it has to be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we ha- it is possible. Let me even say it like that. Not if it's possible. It is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to go to him today as we close and ask for him to be present. And go ahead and invite the worship team to go ahead and come back up right now. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word that is um, powerful and alive and, and um, it separates between bone and marrow. It can tell us the things we don't even know about ourselves better than anyone else could, better than we could, better than um, uh, years of processing could ever accomplish. So Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Bring awareness, bring conviction. Bring a sense and a spirit inside of Common Ground Northeast that we carry out to everywhere we go. That this sense of all love, look, it's forgiven. We've established it. We're going in the same direction. We trust God. It's all love moving forward. And so it will cover minor conflicts, even big ones at times. Father, would you help us to stand on that? As Pastor Ken said last week, that all love and this concept would become the vehicle that gets us to that banquet table in Revelation 7-9. Help us to embrace it. Help us to learn what it means to love in sacrifice. Father, help us to discern. I just feel your, your spirit saying this. <clears throat> there are those who sacrifice to the extent that they accept abuse for it. That's not what we're talking about. And so would you um, reveal that for what it is? So those in a position or who have been put into a position of weakness, Lord, would they see their rightful place inside of this see uh, the beautiful, I see <laughs> the Revelation 7-9 picture in my head is people laughing, is people sharing, saying, hey, pass the salt or pass the, 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 the whatever it is, the, um, the flavor that you prefer. Get, I want to try what you have over there. I've never even been to where you've been. Can you show me how your culture does this thing? I see people spontaneously standing up and dancing together, telling jokes, telling the goodness and all the things that they've done in their life as they sit at that banquet table in heaven. It's fun. It's beautiful. God, draw, sweep us up into that. Sweep us up into that. In Jesus' name.